Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Endometriosis is a disease generally considered of the modern age. 10 to 15% of people who have periods are diagnosed with endometriosis. It takes about seven to eight years to diagnose somebody. So there's a lot of overlap with irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, People are often dismissed. They're often told, oh, you're having painful periods. That's normal. That's okay. Don't worry. Have a child. It'll be fine. And so it's often overlooked. When you look at somebody from the outside, they look normal. So they're expected to live their normal lives. But you know, where you're left sore for days after having penetrative intercourse, when you are not able to get out of your bed because you have such painful periods, when you are not able to conceive because you want to have a baby, when you're left with you know chronic pelvic pain, endometriosis has to be considered. That's Dr. Neetu Pajeko. And this is episode 155 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey, beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. Here we are. An absolute pleasure to be here with you. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, thank you so much for finally joining us, gracing us with your presence. I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Neetu, welcome to the show. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for inviting me. I've been really touched uh, when you reached out to me. So I really enjoy your podcast. I've loved your book. So it gives me great pleasure. I'm really excited to chat with you about women's health, passion of mine. Me too. And it's timely. It's actually a topic that I haven't covered in great depth on the show yet. So I know uh, a number of people from the community have been asking me to get someone on who is an expert and you are that expert. So I'm really excited to to dig into some of these conditions that are are very common in our society and, and no doubt conditions that you're helping women manage all the time. Before we, we get into the specifics, I'd love to learn a little bit about your personal background and sort of the defining parts of your life, I guess, that ultimately led you to specialize in gynecology and and develop a particular interest in using lifestyle and particularly nutrition to help improve outcomes for your patients. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. Don't know how much time you have, uh, but, you know, lived a few more years than you have. Uh, so I was born in India, in Calcutta. If you are familiar with India, it's a huge country, a fourth of the size of United States. Not sure how it compares to Australia, uh, but I'm a South Indian by birth. So from the deeper state called Karnataka, but I, my father was an engineer and he moved to Calcutta where I was born. There were a few things that happened in my life that I think took me towards medicine. I had polio before the polio vaccine was brought into India uh, when I was about 
I don't know, 10 months. And it was because of a very concerned friend who was a medic uh, of my parents that I was referred to the right children's hospital and got supportive therapy. And I was left with no residual issues. And that was important because hundreds and thousands of children died and suffered terribly with paralysis and respiratory problems. So my father always was very proud because I was born on Valentine's Day and then I survived polio. I was a third of uh, three children. And so uh, he encouraged me a lot in sporting events and I was very active in track and field. But in India, if you were good in studies, you basically became a doctor, lawyer, teacher. And so like my brother and sister, I became a doctor. My mother was a teacher, head teacher, actually, teaching English and history. But she was also a very ethical um, vegetarian. And we had a lot of books in our house, a very academic house. Uh, we walked everywhere, but we didn't have much money. So we basically spent our money on simple foods. Everything was home cooked. My mother held four jobs. My father was a very hands-on father. But I used to get very angry with my mother uh, because my friends would often have, well, they would have uh, cereal and toast with butter for breakfast. And I was getting dosas and idlis and lentil pancakes and, you know, whole grain breads. And I thought I really needed to be eating like my friends, you know, omelets and things. And my mother said, look at you. You're the tallest amongst your friends. You're the fastest. I used to be a track and field athlete. Uh, so she knew something that I didn't know and was rather upset because I did go to my friend's houses and eat some goat and it tasted delicious. And my mother was always quite upset when I did come home a couple of times, probably in a year. And she said, aren't you sort of conscious of what's happening? And I said, ah, they're already dead. Uh, and so I ended up in medical school. I was quite a runaway teenager. So my father, although I was very good in studies, my father was very keen for me to move out. I moved to a, one of the top medical schools in India, which was by the seaside. So he lured me saying, you're going to swim every day in the sea and, and things like that. And, you know, he was right. It was a fantastic experience. Within three years of starting medicine, I knew I had to be a surgeon. Um, but I also knew there was more stuff that I wanted to do. And OBS and Gynae was just the perfect fit for me. It had the psychological aspect. I could chat with people. I realized communication was very important uh, because in my second year of medical school, I had gone home. My sister was a doctor and I had a, a little lesion on my skin, uh, which was a bit itchy. And her dermatology professor looked at her and basically diagnosed me with leprosy. And there was a big stigma with leprosy. And he started me on medications. And again, my father came in, you know, to my rescue because he saw me moping around. I had I thought it was the end of the world. You know, leprosy is a very contagious, very, um, not so contagious, but very uh, crippling condition if it's not treated. He took me off to the Hospital of Inspectious Diseases and to my delight and to my <laughs> shame in many ways, it was actually, you know, fungal infection, <laughs> which was ringworm, <laughs> nothing, nothing very serious. But it taught me the importance of being kind and communicative to people. And for me, that always stuck with me that, you know, I needed people to feel every patient of mine had to be 
if it was my sister, my brother, my mother, my father, my daughter, I never wanted to lose that and I haven't ever lost it. I felt that was so, so important and it was it informed me. In medical school, I also met my uh, life partner, uh, who is a spinal uh, orthopedic surgeon now. He's got his own very interesting journey later on. But together we moved to Delhi and both of us got very prestigious residency programs. And as I finished, I realized we were 28. We were going to settle down to jobs uh, that were, you know, in research and as consultants. And I felt we were too young to settle down into these sort of jobs. So we thought we'll, if we went to the U.S., we heard you never came back uh, to India. And if you went to the U.K., they usually kicked you out after four years. So we came to the U.K. with big plans of traveling. And instead, we had already had our first daughter. Uh, and then I was pregnant with my second daughter when we moved here. It was quite an eye-opener. I came from India, having come from a very strong family of aunts and mothers who were all university graduates, highly trained professors in my medical field were all women. The prime minister was a woman. And I came here and I found that obs and gynae, like all other specialities, was male-dominated. And for me, that was really a shock. I thought I was coming to a developed country where women had equal rights. And I didn't find that. Almost all my consultants were men. Well, all my consultants were men. So I had no role models. And all of them had a wife who stayed at home and 2.4 children and, you know, a four-wheel drive and a dog. And I had a couple of female consultants who really had to sort of step up to the plate and be very much more masculine in many ways. So I didn't want to be that person. I was having a second baby. I'd already had another shock. Again, communication was a problem. In India, when I was having an ultrasound scan and I was trained in ultrasound, which is a scanning of your baby when she's in your tummy or he's in your tummy. And there was a little growth on my placenta, which feeds the baby. And it was something called a benign growth called a chorioangioma. And when the letter came through the post, because Rajiv, my husband, was already in the UK a month before me, and I was studying for an exam for the uh, membership in, in the UK. And this letter came through the door and it said that choriocarcinoma had been diagnosed. Now, choriocarcinoma is a cancer. Chorioangioma is a benign tumor. And in my head, you know, I'm a 28-year-old, 29-year-old, and I'm thinking, this can't be right. I have seen the scan myself. I know it's a benign growth, but you know, it's the power of words. And choriocarcinoma, this is the worst weekend in my life. I didn't know what to do. And so my father, who I was staying with, my father and mother, they said, hold on, let's go get a second opinion. Let's just check out. And they said, oh yeah, that's just a mistake. It should be choriangioma. That had already taken me through hell for 48 hours. So once again, I realized the power of communication, the power of being kind, kind to, you know, patients, because they're frightened. People are frightened when they come to see you. They think you know everything and that they don't know much. So that informed me quite a lot. So when we came to the UK, it was a tough time. You know, I nearly delivered in the car. I had, we had no family. I had you know, it was I went back to work both times within a few days of delivering, you know, so I was very ambitious. I wanted to reach the top of my game. I didn't want any men running past me. I was a runner, <laughs> you know, so uh, and I had a very supportive partner. So we always sort of danced together. You know, if I took a step forward in my career, he took a step back and look after the children and I moved forward and he stepped, you know, when I stepped back, he moved forward. So it was like that. And then, of course, in four or five years, when we had promised 
our girls. They were very little. We had promised the girls that we're going back to India. My husband got a consultant job and then I became a minimal access trainee, which basically means that you do keyhole surgery, one of my interests. Uh, and so to cut a long story short now, uh, I became a consultant, have been a consultant uh, in the NHS for the last 20 years. Education, both medical and public education, is my passion. I have lots of special interests, which basically mean interest in pre-cancer, in polycystic ovarian syndrome, in menopause, in robotic surgery. I was the first surgeon to do robotic surgery among women in Northwest London. I was also, you know, one of the first cohort of people who did lifestyle medicine, and I'm board certified from the US. So... I realized as I was working, you know, I've spent 35 years in OBS and Gaini, and it was so, so thrilling. I still find it thrilling, you know, making these active decisions. You know, women are bleeding to death. They can lose two liters of blood in a minute, you know, after delivery. And you go in there and you can walk out often thinking, oh, my God, I just rocked that. And I just, you know, and that thrill of making changes. But I felt that I was often seeing women, both in pregnancy as well as in gynecology, after the disease process had started, after gestational diabetes, which is diabetes in pregnancy, after they've developed polycystic ovarian syndrome, after they've started having symptoms quite significantly. And so I felt there must be something more. I didn't have enough in my toolbox, you know, to try and help. And I thought there must be something. There must be something. I still didn't know what it was because we are never taught anything about lifestyle. You know, nutrition was what is a calorie? You know, how many calories are there in one gram of carbohydrate, protein? That's all. That was it. Nothing more. And I used to always wonder, you know, when I look at my parents and they were eating basically now what I know is a whole food plant-based diet. I still didn't realize that diet had anything to do with health and disease. Interestingly, I was 38. I was just about to apply uh, for a consultant job. I was really busy trying to do things and my period stopped. My periods hopped, skipped for a year and then they stopped. And I thought I was getting bullied and I thought maybe... I'm just stressed. I'm applying for jobs. I've got a young family. I wake up at 4.30 every morning, you know. I just thought it was that. Not realizing I was one of those 100 women around the age of 35, 40 that was suffering from premature ovarian failure. I was having hot flushes. I was having panic attacks. And I didn't know where to turn. And that made me very upset. I knew the medical side of things, but I didn't know how else I could help myself. And so I started looking at things. And at the same time, my daughter, my younger daughter that I had been pregnant with was nine or 10. She came home and decided that she was going to go vegan. And I didn't really understand it. My mother and father had already, they were vegan. My brother was vegan. But anyway, she decided. And I thought, why can't you just be vegetarian? I've been vegetarian all my life and completely committed to being vegetarian. Within the week of moving to the UK, I saw something Actually, I saw sheep being sheared in Australia. <laughs> that really put me off uh, anything to do with animals. But I still didn't realize the connection between uh, dairy milk and beef, for example. And my daughter said, Mom, don't you know that white equals red? And I said, what does that mean? She said, well, you know, every time you drink milk or eat cheese, that same cow has to go and become beef. And to me, I, it immediately clicked. And so I thought, you know, I have to be a good mother. I don't understand being vegan, but let me do everything. And I became vegan 
just because she had. And within a few months, my symptoms improved hugely. I, still being the skeptical scientist and doctor that I am, put nothing two and two together. Another 10 years went by and I kept wondering why I feel so good. And I was educating my patients about, you know, ethical things, but not really about the science. So I then discovered the science and nutrition and was angry that I'd never been taught all this huge amounts of scientific evidence that is there completely explaining every aspect of women's health at all ages and all stages that benefits from diet and lifestyle factors. And that made me go on a mission to actually make a difference in my own way. So I set up a, a non-profit organization called Women for Women's Health. My hospital didn't want to know. My Royal College didn't want to know when I tried to set up a nutritional module because I was the training program director. I was teaching, but they didn't want to know. So I set up my own program and I run workshops in schools and things like that. I take my hat off to you. I mean, it's tremendous, your career and, and the family you've built along the way uh, in a male-dominated field of medicine. It really is incredible. So you should be very, very proud of that. I find it really nice to also sort of see the full circle with regards to the diet that you were growing up on. You mentioned lentil pancakes and now I'm sure that you see those lentil pancakes a little, little differently today and probably are super grateful for the diet that you were brought up on. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm going to be 60 uh, in February and I, in my head, I'm 22. So, <laughs> and I feel 22. So hopefully I have a few more years of doing work, uh, good work for the rest of the people that, you know, I can serve. I think it's cool as well that there in your story, there's there's learnings and wisdom from multiple generations. You were learning from your mother, but also from your daughter. And no doubt both of them also learning from you. So it's really cool. Now, if someone is hearing OBS and gyne for the very first time, that might sound a little foreign. Now, some other people may be very familiar with that. Can we kind of just define our terms, you know, from the outset here before we sort of jump into some of the specific conditions? So an obstetrician and gynecologist is a mouthful. These are all Latin words. Medicine has always tried to be exclusive. And as a result, you exclude people by using terminology that instead of saying painful periods, you say dysmenorrhea. So these are things which I don't think were done initially by intention, or maybe they were, but our job is to break that down. So in the US, it's known as OBGYN. In uh, India, it's known as your gyno. And obstetrician and gynecologist is a specialist, a doctor who specializes in women's health. Obstetrics is everything to do with pregnancy and deliveries. And gynecology is to do with everything in between at all stages, all ages of life. So from birth to menopause and beyond. So that's what I deal with the reproductive organs of those assigned female at birth. And I, I want to start right in the beginning just to explain this because I'm quite new to this. Uh, but, you know, being gender inclusive, only a couple of years ago, it was pointed out to me by a patient. And it is important to be inclusive because I know as a woman of color, as a person of color, uh, that sometimes you can be excluded. And it needed me to be really confident and to be able to speak speak in front of others to say, I'm 
I'm an equal, I'm just as much. And that's what informs me when it comes to whether it's race or gender. And when I say gender inclusive, there are people who are born at birth and are assigned female. Now, however, they may that's their sex, but they may choose their gender may be different. So they may be, you know, transgender, which means that they may find that they want to transition to becoming, if they were assigned female, become trans male, or it may be, they may be non-binary and that could be, you know, pansexual, asexual, or not the typical binary, which is male, female. And actually ancient religions, including Hindu religions, explain this very well. There is a woman in every man and there's a man in every woman. It's known as Ardhanari, which basically means that you're a bit of this and a bit of that. And there's nobody is gender fluid. And in Western um, civilization, that was, you know, basically poo-pooed and put aside saying that's wrong, that's not possible. But we know that that is how we all are. There's always a bit of everything in us. And so I want, uh, when I say the word woman, I mean I want to include all transgender people, non-binary people, intersex, and anybody who chooses to identify as they wish to. That's important because when I, I use the word woman sometimes in, in studies and all that, and it you know it's something that I'm still learning, but I just want us to be very clear that I want us to include everybody, anybody who's assigned female at birth, AFABs. I'm glad that you touched on that. I think it's a very, it's a tricky sort of area to navigate and uh, to make sure that you are inclusive with your language is very important and language is very powerful. And I imagine that being inclusive is going to help all people feel like they can can come and make the most of this field of medicine and participate in screening or see a doctor for an issue that they're experiencing versus feeling stigmatized, feeling threatened, and then not seeing a doctor? That is really important, Simon, because, so for example, in the medical field, we are generally not a very safe place. We tend to be quite judgmental. Body weight is, you know, so fat shaming is actually very prevalent in the medical field and studies have been done to show that if you are male, white, young and from a higher socioeconomic status, you're more likely to have both implicit and explicit bias against people carrying excess weight and even more so than with gender identity and even racism and race. So it's really important for us as doctors, as health professionals, because you are a nutritionist and a physiotherapist, right? If we are not open and willing to say, oh, I got that wrong, or how do you choose to identify what would you like to be called? You know, it is so important because if you are somebody who's carrying excess weight and you have diabetes or heart disease or polycystic ovarian syndrome, and if I'm going to be judgmental about you or make an offhand remark, oh, you must lose weight, how am I going to give that person trust that they want to come back and see me and actually listen to what I have to say. You know, you don't have to say it in in words. You can also say it in actions and actions can be either kind and open and welcoming. You can say all the right things, (laughs) but 
means something completely different, isn't it? We all know that these subtle things and women will tell you very subtle actions that will tell you you're not welcome. People of color will tell you that. People in different body shapes uh, and sizes will tell you that, you know, so people assume a lot of things, not through not through deliberate wish, but often through ignorance and fear and just not being educated, I think. Being more educated allows for better bedside manner, I guess, is probably a way to describe it. And and on the weight topic, I've heard a few doctors talk about this and I heard one in particular that really resonated with me and he was talking about with his patients, he usually asks for consent. Do you, do you feel comfortable talking about your weight? And I thought that was, it's such a simple question, but it could easily be overlooked. And it's important to understand that, you know, one of my special interests is polycystic ovarian syndrome and quite a number of people with PCOS will carry excess weight. So it's really important. How do you want to be addressed? Do you want us to weigh you? Some people find it very triggering if there is disordered eating. If you don't ask these questions, you're going to make that person feel very vulnerable. They've actually shut down completely. Like when you tell somebody they've got cancer, if you the moment you use that word cancer, they don't hear anything after that. It's like that. And so asking the person how they want to be addressed, what are they more comfortable talking about? What are their goals? Does it always have to be weight loss? Can it be something else? And so those are the ways that you would actually negotiate and involve people in these sort of discussions. And if you don't do that, you're going to miss out on a lot. And Another thing I just want to mention is we often say that person is diabetic or an obese person or a PCOS sufferer or a PCOS person. No, you're not just that, you know, I'm not just a diabetic or I'm not just, uh, you know, an obese person. I'm a person who may suffer with obesity. That's different. That's a medical term then. And again, communication is so, so important that, you know, I think the younger generation are doing a much better job. But And people of my generation in the medical field have a lot to, um, they often dismiss it. But, you know, we need to embrace this because if you don't, you're going to be left behind. Yeah. I was glad to see I saw a a position statement from one of the endocrinology papers and they spoke about diabetes and about language and the importance of saying people living with diabetes rather than diabetic. And diabetic as a, a term, it is defining someone by their illness which that's the problem. Exactly. Stigmatizing. And it is pervasive. And it's, I, I think, often to to your earlier point, I think a lot of people use it with good intent and, and, and not realizing that it is stigmatizing. It's about education, Simon. It really is. We are all learning. You know, I don't think I've got it all right. And it's okay to be corrected. I want to be corrected. I have been corrected, you know, and I loved it because the American College of um, Obs and Gynae just came out about cervical screening. Uh, Cervix is a part of the uterus, which is exposed in the vagina and is exposed to cervical cancer. And so we do something called pap smears or cervical screening. And before we used to always say women with cervix, but actually you should say a person with a cervix or people with services, you know, because not all people who have a cervix are women, just like not all people with periods are women. There are women like me who don't have periods, who are menopausal. There are women who are under the age of 15 or 13 before they've started their periods, who've not got a uterus, who've had a hysterectomy. So it's just being aware that when you 
use these general terms, they, you may leave out a whole bunch of people who, who feel left out. <laughs> yeah, and I certainly d- am not perfect, so uh, I, I will hopefully use appropriate language uh, as much as possible. But I'm sure in this conversation I will, I will slip into old habits and, and I think it, it's a work in progress, but at least if people are aware about it and having the conversation, I think that's a good starting point. In terms of jumping into some of these specific conditions and talking in more detail about things like endometriosis and PCOS, I think it might be a good point early on to talk about the anatomy. I know that you encourage people to get to know their body. So what makes up the female reproductive system? Where is it all located and and what are the roles of each of the organs? Okay, so I won't go into embryology uh, because it's very fascinating, but you have to know that most people who are assigned female at birth will have a uterus, uh, which is known as the womb, and the opening to that is the cervix. uh, And the wonderful thing about the cervix is that it's got an opening from which you have your menstrual period, but also allows babies to come out, uh, but also is exposed to a lot of environmental pollutants and infections. And so the human papilloma virus likes to sort of nestle in that area. And so cervical screening is really important because we can actually prevent cervical cancer. So the uterus and the cervix is the main body of the uterus and then the neck of the womb is called the cervix and then you have the fallopian tubes uh, which are sort of long little tubes with uh, imagine a flower at the end of each I like to think of the uterus as a very beautiful organ it's you know and so these fimbrial ends receive the egg which are released from the two egg baskets or the ovaries and of course you can live your life with just one ovary but you know have two ovaries two fallopian tubes a uterus a cervix and that opens up into an elongated tube called the vagina, which then opens into the exterior and is enveloped by two sets of labia, which are basically form part of something called the vulva. Now, it's important to know this because one in 10 women surveyed in a national survey in the UK did not know where their reproductive organs were. It's nestled deep down in your pelvis. And people often think of the ovaries standing at attention, but actually they're nestled right near your bowel, right down. Uh, And so sometimes you may feel a pain down below, uh, especially if you're quite slim. And when you have sex, it may actually stimulate the ovaries. And so one in 10 women did not know where their uterus was. One in two women uh, and men even less, could not identify where the cervix was. And one in four women did not know where the vagina was in a survey of about 2,000 women in the UK who identified as women. So that's really important. So knowing your body is key. And that's one of my constant messages to the public. Know your body, whether you're a man or a woman, know how your body works and know the different parts. Because if you don't know the different parts, how are you going to explain to your health professional in 10 minutes what is wrong with you? How are you going to be able to explain and highlight the problems that you have? So knowing your body is really important. And I also have another mantra that I say to all my patients. Nobody knows your body better than you. Not your doctor, maybe your mother, 
or father right in the beginning, but nobody loves your body more than you. Nobody knows your body better than you. So you've got to take charge. Don't just believe somebody, even if it is Dr. Bajikal telling you about things. No, look at her credentials. Look at where the information is coming from. Does it sit right with you? Does it make sense? Explore that because people often say, oh, I started eating soya after I followed you, Dr. Bajikal. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Follow the science. Look at all the science that I talk about and then follow rather than just following somebody blindly. Understand your body and then work with it. Because if you don't educate yourself, you can't empower yourself. If you can't empower yourself, you can't educate anybody else around you. So, you know, know your body and nobody knows your body better than you. The highly controversial soya. We'll come back to that. We'll put a, we'll put a pin <laughs> I think in we that. Need a, need a whole session before that. <laughs> we'll make sure we hit it. Now, at a high level, what is the typical journey for a, a person assigned female from birth across their lifespan? What's the, the sort of more common things that they might experience related to their reproductive system? So what happens is that usually, I mean, I'm just giving you a broad example, but around the age of 12, one starts having the first period is known as the menarche. Again, a Latin word, but it's the start of your first period. And if you haven't had a period by the age of 15, you need to seek help uh, or your parents need to seek help. It may just need reassurance. But if you don't do that, you may miss out on adolescent polycystic ovarian syndrome, or you may have a, a problem with your chromosomes, which is your genetic makeup, so many other conditions. And so it's important to look for that. So the menarche is the start of the period, and it's usually around 12, 13. It has got earlier and earlier with modern life, probably to do with nutrition, probably to do with some of the foods that we're eating, probably to do with some of the environmental pollutants and the water we drink. It's all very quite complex, but essentially it's around... Any age after the age of eight and before 15 is considered within normal limits. When you say that's becoming a little earlier and, and to do with our lifestyle and environment, are you talking about sort of premature earlier changes in hormones? Yes. So what happens is menarche is when a couple of years before menarche or the first start of the first period, you start noticing pubic hair, axillary hair, skin changes, growth. And so if after a year or two of starting puberty or periods haven't started, that may be, there may be something wrong. But what is happening is previously, we know that about 100, 200, 300 years ago, women usually started their periods around 13, 14, 15. And we're seeing a slight creep up. And that's to do with better nutrition, better height, uh, but also to do with now think that there are some associations with the kind of foods we are eating in the Western world, Observational studies are still ongoing, but we do think that they're creeping closer to, you know, 10, 11. So it, it's heading that way, but the studies are not yet fully out. But we are seeing a slight change because of the fact that there are a lot of hormones everywhere uh, that are, you know, fed to animals in the sewage, in the water uh, and things. So I, I won't be surprised if we see earlier maturation of the reproductive system because of certain things. We certainly see it in fish and things. Uh, I, I'm sure you've read about, you know, their reproductive organs changing in the water that they're swimming. So I, I won't be surprised, you know, humans are mammals and animals. So first of all, it can cause hormonal disruptions, uh, but also you know, the longer you're exposed to hormones, uh, because so menarche is the start of the first period, menopause is the 
your last menstrual period and a gap. And when you've not had periods for 12 months, you're said to be menopausal. And then you have a third of your lifespan between the ages of about 51. Now, menopause seems to be fairly steady all over the world. Women tend to become menopausal around the age of 51, but anywhere between the ages of 45 to 55 is acceptable. And so the longer you're exposed to hormones, you can imagine that based on those hormones, you may be at a higher risk of certain hormone-dependent conditions, endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, fibroids, which are lumps of benign tumors. Some people with PCOS will have delayed menopause. Some people may have earlier menopause like I did. You know, stress can play a role. It's very, very complex and it's difficult with observational studies and difficult uh, to actually tease out these population things. But what we do know is that menarche is shifting First period is shifting and last period so far remains to be steady around the age of 51. But during this whole lifespan of people who are assigned female at birth, you will have periods. Periods are responsible for the loss of nine, that's nearly two weeks, nine days of total loss productivity every year. There was a huge Dutch study that looked at, oh, I don't know, 35,000 women, I think, um, between the ages of 15 and 45. And what they found was there was presenteeism and absenteeism. So because of pain, because of heavy periods, women stayed at home, didn't go to school or didn't couldn't go to work. And even when they came to work, they were not able to focus. And it's, it's such a big public health problem. Nine days, that's a huge amount of time. And it's not recognized as a significant health problem. You know, almost as bad as back pain, but not recognized. So you start your periods at the age of 12 and you go on till 51. That's a lot of periods. So if you think about it, about 200 years ago or even 150 years ago, a woman would start her period at the age of, say, 13 or 14. She would then get pregnant at 14. She would either be dead in childbirth or she would have the baby after nine months. She would be nursing for about two, three, four years, have another baby. If she's lucky enough to survive, she'll have, you know, 10 12 babies, and usually the mortality rate was around 35, 40 years of age. But she would have 10 periods in her lifetime. We now have between 350 to 500 periods in our lifetime because we either we delay childbirth, which is good. You don't have to want to have 10, 15 children. But because we delay childbirth, because we have one, two or three children, we tend to have you know, 350 to 500 periods. So having periods is actually not a, a natural phenomenon, if you understand. We were not evolved to have so many periods. So, you know, but we also don't want to have that many children. So we've got to find a happy balance. But when you have all these periods, you have anemia, you're tired, you may be fatigued. One in five women have heavy periods in all over the world. You can have conditions like endometriosis, fibroids, ovarian cancer, ovarian cysts. Pregnancy comes in the way as well, and you may choose to have one or two or three pregnancies or more. You may have a cesarean section. You may have traumatic vaginal deliveries. You know, a woman's life is fraught generally with increased mortality. And the recent Oxford study showed that black women have a five times higher rate of dying in childbirth. Uh, You know, so there is so much to be negotiated, you know, socioeconomic status, race, uh, gender. There's a lot. Perhaps we dive into periods before we get into increased pain and looking at endometriosis and things. Let's perhaps look at the menstrual cycle, what's happening to the body, how does it all work when it's functioning normally? 
So the reproductive system is very dependent on hormones. Now, hormones are chemical messengers. Imagine them as chemical messengers produced in one part of the body and they have their action at a different part. Generally, that's what happens. And so you have the brain and the ovaries in close communication with each other. And when that gets disrupted, things can go wrong. So in the menstrual cycle, it's all very finely tuned. So every menstrual cycle is... You know, when the lining sheds, it's because a pregnancy hasn't occurred, because nature is trying to get people pregnant. That's the only job of evolution in nature is to reproduce. So in the first half of the cycle, you're already born with a number of eggs. Remember the egg baskets or the ovaries I mentioned? You're already born with a number of eggs in your ovaries. You're not going to make any new ones. And a lot of them get destroyed by the time you're actually born compared to the one when you're conceived. And then about 350 of those eggs or 500 of those eggs may be used in your lifetime. So one egg gets selected because there's a message from the brain. There are two very important hormones called FSH, which is follicle stimulating hormone, and LH, which is luteinizing hormone. And there's something called the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, uh, which is, you know, basically a circuit uh, which any point it gets disrupted from exercise or stress or uh, eating disorders or pregnancy or menopause, then pregnancy is a condition that occurs when evolution wants you to do it in a, a time of plentiful. As soon as there's a famine, your periods stop because it's not in your interest to have periods, right? So the period is divided into two halves generally. The first half where you have the follicle stimulating hormone stimulates a follicle, which is a, a small fluid filled cystic structure when an egg is recruited and they say, ah, you are the marathon runner the, or the sprinter and the others, you can just, you know, sort of jog in your spot. And so out of this lot of eggs that are released, one of them is selected to become proper follicle, the egg matures, and then there are triggers from the brain, including luteinizing hormone, and then the egg gets released and then estrogen that has been slowly rising because it's produced by the ovaries. Ovaries are hormone producing factories. And so when the estrogen levels rise and the LH levels rise, then the egg gets released. It then meets the sperm as it glides through the fallopian tube. It meets the sperm and a pregnancy may occur. If it doesn't occur, and in this meantime, the progesterone, which is another hormone, estrogen and progesterone are produced by the ovary, that starts rising. And then when there doesn't appear to be any uh, reason or a pregnancy has not occurred, then roughly two weeks from ovulation, the lining starts shedding. And that is known as a menstrual period. So two cycles, follicular phase, luteal phase, FSH and LH produced by the brain and estrogen and progesterone generally produced by the ovary. And so you need all these hormones to work in absolute harmony, like an orchestra. And if it doesn't, then things can go wrong. So that is important to understand that periods are a vital sign. So if you're not on any hormonal contraception, so if you are on the pill or an injection, hormonal injection or a hormonal intrauterine system, it's okay not to have periods. But if you are, if you're pregnant, it's okay not to have periods. If you're menopausal, or if you have not started your period, it's okay not to have periods. But between the ages of starting your period and finishing your period, if you're not on medication and there's no cause attributed, then periods are a vital sign. And doctors, 
health professionals in your specialty anytime you ask somebody what is your temperature what's your pulse rate what's your blood pressure you need to ask what are your periods like because that will tell you whether somebody is going to have osteoporotic fractures that's going to tell you whether they have conditions that may be predisposing them to missing their periods you know hypothalamic amenorrhea lots and lots of conditions are there so if you don't treat periods as a vital sign and actually the american uh, college of pediatrics and obs and gynae have now said they've got a position paper where they say that periods should be considered a vital sign everybody who walks into a hospital or a clinic should be asked about their periods because it is so crucial it tells us what your general health is you know are you eating enough do you have enough calories are you stressed are you you know pregnant all these things would you say as well the earlier you present following losing your period the easier it will be to manage whatever condition you may have and and potentially reduce the impact of that on your life, overall health and fertility? Absolutely. So what we say to understand what it means to have a missed period or a delayed period, you have to know what a normal period is. So a normal period is anywhere between one and seven days. People will often say, oh, I have very light periods. Is that wrong? No, there's no problem having light periods as long as they're regular. And you need to have your own cycle. And the cycle interval tends to be anywhere between 24 and 35 days. So not everybody will have a classic 28-day cycle. For you, it may be 30, 31, 32 days. Or for somebody else, it may be a 24, 25, 26 days. But if you're swinging from 21 days to 45 days, then that suggests that there is a problem with frequency. That's not normal for you. And if you miss your periods, and if you have irregular bleeding, or you have bleeding after sex, or in between your periods, if anything is lasting for more than two months, up to three months, then you should seek advice. Or if you're concerned, you know, because these all are red flags to us. It may be that there is nothing wrong and you've just moved to a new home or you've started university and you've missed your periods. Those things are okay, but you can't ignore it. After three months, certainly you shouldn't ignore it. And any bleeding uh, that is not expected or if you're not up to date with your pap smears and cervical screening, then those are all, again, red flags to see a specialist who, or, or, or your family doctor, that's enough. But you need to be talking to somebody, you know, if you're missing your period or if you're getting too frequent periods. So one to seven days is the normal flow. So a heavy period is anything that you think is heavy. It's not what your doctor tells you. So in the research setting, we would measure how much of blood one loses. And it's only about 80 mils, which is about six tablespoons. Okay, so it's not a lot, you would think. And most women listening to this will say, oh, I lose a lot more than that. Well, actually, because the blood is mixed with the lining, with cells, with uh, decidual tissue and things like that. So that's why it appears much more. But if you're passing clots that are larger than you know, your thumbnail, if you are uh, using double protection, which means flooding or, uh, you know, using a tampon and pads or anything like anything that is not right for you, you see your doctor because you need to have a blood test to just check a very simple blood test to check your hemoglobin levels, to check your iron store levels. So hemoglobin is very important because that will drop as you lose blood. And so if you imagine hemoglobin to be the money in your wallet and iron stores to be the money in your bank. So what can happen is as you get progressively more anemic as your hemoglobin level, so you don't have much, many dollars in your wallet and your iron stores in the bank, you have some money. But as it keeps dropping, suddenly you find that you don't have much 
resource at all. And so you go to the bank and they say, sorry, nothing much there. And so that's why it's such a simple thing. And, you know, every day in my clinics and in my hospital, I'll see women admitted for blood transfusions and things because they've thought, oh, I'll just wait. Oh, this must be because I'm going through the change or this is normal for me. No. If you think your periods are heavy, if you're using double protection, if you're leaking all the time, if you're having flooding, if you're having clots, small, tiny clots, no problem. But if you're having any of that, if there's a change in the pattern of your cycle, don't ignore it. You may be just reassured. And if you are not happy with what the health professional tells you, ask for help. There are plenty of kind, empathetic and experienced health professionals, because sometimes you may not hit it off with a health professional as well and may feel dismissed. What about pain? Because would I be correct in saying that some pain and discomfort is normal? We hear about the term PMS, right? And maybe that's a, that's used quite colloquially, but it's a medical term short for premenstrual syndrome. And I'm curious, what is considered a normal level of discomfort or emotional symptoms when it comes to a period? So premenstrual syndrome is a whole different uh, area and we'll come to that in a second. But um, period pain or dysmenorrhea is classified into two types. Primary, which means there's no obvious cause and secondary when there is a cause. When there's no cause, often you will find people who are just starting out with their periods may have painful periods and that's because of prostaglandins. So prostaglandins are basically inflammatory compounds which are from fats, eicosanoids, and basically they have different actions and different parts of your body. And so in the endometrium or the lining of the womb, which is called the endometrial lining, um, what happens is prostaglandins are released. They are basically produced by something called arachidonic acid. And so when these prostaglandins are released, what happens is you will often have your listeners tell you, oh, I feel I have an upset tummy. I have diarrhea. I have constipation. I have nausea. I have a headache. I have terrible period pain. Now, this is all down to that single culprit, the prostaglandins. And we know that there are lots of things we can do to help reduce those inflammatory prostaglandins. And so those inflammatory leukotrienes, these prostaglandins that are produced during your period are responsible for your pain. Now, some amount of pain may be acceptable if it doesn't you know, stop you, but any bleeding, heavy bleeding or any pain that stops interferes with the quality of your life. That means that you're not able to get up and do your normal work. It doesn't settle with normal painkillers, then that is a red flag again. Now, with painkillers, people often will take something like paracetamol, which is not really helpful because it's not an anti-prostaglandin. You want something that works against prostaglandin and that are group of two things. One is uh, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, something like the ibuprofen group, because they work against the prostaglandins. And the trick is to take it as soon as you see the first spot of blood. You don't actually wait for the pain to start, because by then the prostaglandin levels are so high that you have to work twice as hard, take higher doses. So all you need to do is, if you know your periods are coming the next day, or as soon as your period starts, you take it three times a day after meals, you know, in a small dose, and usually need to take it just for 24 hours and you should be able to do your work. But not everybody wants to take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. They may have gastritis, they may not want to take medications. So it's really important to understand that what you're trying to do is reduce inflammation. And ginger, a big meta-analysis was done. Uh, and these are all of small studies, but the studies have basically shown that if you take a pinch of ginger powder, the trials were done with tablets double-blinded and so they put ginger powder in 
know, up to 2000 milligrams in different capsules. But you don't need to do that. You can buy ginger powder that you would use in your cooking. So I encourage all my patients to use ginger root throughout the month in their dishes, have ginger tea, you know, great fresh ginger, it's cheap. Uh, And then take ginger powder, a third of a teaspoon, three times a day for about four days works just as well as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for some people. So, you know, there are options available. And so does a plant-based diet. A plant-based diet reduces inflammation and that's how it actually works for painful periods. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. I'm curious, you mentioned before that actually compared to two, three, four hundred years ago, people that are assigned female at birth today who are having periods are having way more periods than historically. And, and that gets me thinking about oral contraception. So if someone is thinking about taking the pill or is on the pill and they're using that as a way of reducing the discomfort that they're experiencing and, and they're not thinking about having a baby, is there anything wrong with that as a strategy? It seems like it is quite a controversial topic. I wonder what your stance is on that from an evidence-based position. My stance is very clear. And it is all based on science. There is no confusion. Now, the important thing to understand about the combined oral contraceptive pill, like all the hormone-containing contraceptives, they basically mimic pregnancy. That's what they all do, generally. And the combined oral contraceptive pill has got a lot of contraceptive benefits. Uh, It's 99.8% effective, which basically means that if you take it properly, the chance of getting pregnant is pretty much zero. The reason there is a, a real uh, failure rate of 8 to 9% is because uh, women often will forget to take them. They may have diarrhea and it doesn't get absorbed. They may have had a drink. You know, they may be on antibiotics. So that's why you have a failure rate when people will tell you, oh, I got pregnant on the pill. That's usually not the fault of the pill. It's just something that you've missed out on. And so that's important to understand. There are also... so. Unless you're in a relationship where getting pregnant is an option, it's not the end of the world. You have to understand that you can't speak against the pill because you're then speaking in a position from a position of privilege. Okay, and a position of privilege can be very dangerous because condoms, for example, uh, internal so female condoms, male condoms, male condoms, you're relying on somebody else, and you're left as the woman to carry the baby, right? So, so you are really relying on somebody else. And that may not be possible if you don't know the person well enough. Yes, condoms and barrier contraception is really important to prevent infections, but you need something very effective. And you need something that also helps you with your periods, so painful periods, heavy periods, because it suppresses ovulation. You also don't need to take the pill every month with a break. The reason that was brought in, and this is really funny, or not so funny actually, because it was politicized, uh, when it was initially researched, 
the lead researcher explained very clearly that the combined oral contraceptive pill should be taken back to back without a period. It was during the time of the 1960s when essentially there were two things that happened. I think Nixon was running uh, for president and the sanitary towel industry says, hey, mate, what's happening? You are going to get us out of business. We can't have women not having periods. They need to have periods. We can't be out of business. So that was one of the reasons why the pill was brought in with a monthly break. The second was abortion was legalized, okay, in the US. And so suddenly there were going to be all these women like us uh, who could, you know, walk around, uh, take the combined oral contraceptive pill, and then if we did get pregnant, have a termination. That was just too much to handle. And so they didn't get the sanction from the Pope. And so essentially, the pill was brought in with a monthly break. So I tell all my patients that you should take the pill back to back if your body lets you, so you don't have spotting and things, and you can take it with a break every three months, every six months, every year, because this is not a true period. It's just a withdrawal bleed. And the non-contraceptive benefits of the combined pill tends to be that if you take it for at least four to five years, then you halve your risk, lifetime risk that is present even after stopping the pill of reducing your risk of ovarian cancer, womb cancer, colon cancer. So you reduce your risk. If you take it for more than 10 to 12 years, you increase your risk slightly of breast cancer. But breast cancer is a lifestyle cancer, which has got much more to do with diet. But once you stop the pill after 12 years, you go back to your background risk. But you can take the pill until you're menopausal. There's no contraindication unless you have other contraindications. If you're a smoker, you know, if you are carrying excess weight, if you have clotting problems, of course you can't take that, definitely. But for the right person, the pill can be a real help. There have been studies to suggest that mood can be affected, especially in teenagers. There was a million uh, women studied and so one has to be aware of these and, you know, counsel people, but sometimes and often the benefits outweigh the risks. And subsequently, all research then on all the other hormonal contraceptions, so the progesterone-only pill, the implant, uh, the intrauterine system, they all are designed to cause no bleeding. Once you are on hormonal contraception, there is no advantage to have heavy periods, to have painful periods. You reduce the risk of endometriosis. You treat polycystic ovarian syndrome. You treat the symptoms of PCOS, such as acne and increased hair growth when you take the combined pill. So, you know, there are lots of non-contraceptive benefits, reducing your risk of cancer, and also the freedom, the freedom to space your family. Because remember, maternal mortality is the biggest killer. There's a jumbo jet full of women every six minutes all over the world. If you imagine a jumbo jet crashing every six minutes, that's the number of women that die from childbirth. That's the number of women that die. Can you imagine that? It's like men who take their lives. In the UK, we have 5,000 men who take their lives. And that works out to something like 100 men per week. Imagine if there was a plane crash with 100 men every single week. These things are not highlighted. We need to talk about mental health. We need to talk about, you know, maternal mortality. These are things that are so important uh, that for some reason always get sidelined. They're not sexy, you know? Yeah, I agree. And with all of that in mind, I'm sure you've seen online there are various camps that are seemingly very anti the oral contraception and the pill. And I'm wondering if the evidence is so clear, why do we see that? Why why is there such great controversy online? Where do you think that's coming from? I would put that straight back to you. 
as in I know, you know, that eating more whole plant foods, the huge global burden of disease showed when it looked at 195 countries, it said that fruits, vegetables and whole grains was the three most important dietary factors over even eating your crisps and pizzas and whatever else you ate. If you ate these three things, you basically averted a lot of chronic illness. So we know that. Why do we not talk about it? Why do we not talk about plant-based or plant-predominant diets? There are so many vested interests. So when you are talking about the combined oral contraceptive pill, there is fear, there is ignorance, and there is also a lot of, in the wellness space, there's a lot of supplements to be sold. There is a lot of controversy to be created so that you confuse people. Because as I said, if you are somebody who's going to use your natural menstrual cycle, you may be very lucky. You may be having dead on cycles, 28 day cycles. You can do the natural methods. And if you did get pregnant, it's not the end of the world for you. But for some people, it is the end of the world. They may have medical conditions. They may not be able to afford having a pregnancy. So I think there's a lot of controversy because people are not stopping and looking at the science. They don't want to hear the science. You know, yes, there are side effects with anything. I mean, crossing the road has a side effect. Yes, one in six chance of having a road traffic accident if you go in a car. But we still do it, right? So just like that, with the pill, between one and five women, every 10,000 women years, I think, can develop a clot, even if you're not on any hormonal medication. You know, there was a recent lot of uproar because of the AstraZeneca vaccine and the clots. And as the science came out, yes, it's very rare. It's one in a million. Uh, but you know, as the science became more evident, we realized that actually you may be right now, we don't have all the information. Let's reserve the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a viral vector vaccine. Let's reserve it for above 40, okay, rather than under 40. And so people said, but why are we not talking about the pill and the terrible clots that it causes? Let's st stop and take a breath here. One to five women in 10,000 years, women years, develop a clot, whether you're on anything or not. 25 to 65 women who are pregnant or have just delivered develop clots per 10,000 women years. And with the combined oral contraceptive pill, it's six per 10,000 women years. So one to five, six, 25 to 65. What should you prevent? An unwanted pregnancy. Simple. End of. No discussion. Okay. Yes, I want to see more research. Research in women's health is so lacking, even though we have a whole speciality in women's health. But what happens is there are, you know, male contraception, you know, how many studies, how many research papers, how many trials have been started and failed because, you know, it is not in the interest of a man to take medication to prevent pregnancy. Okay, so that is the problem. We don't have a good enough reason to push people, say, come on, chaps, you can take this. You know, like a vasectomy is, is something like, I don't know, 10 times safer than a female sterilization. I mean, not that any of those are ideal. You know, one should find reversible methods in case your life uh, decisions change over your life. But all I'm saying is that a vasectomy, which is, you know, tying your male tubes, is a simple procedure under local anesthetic. Tying a woman's tubes involves me putting a, a telescope in and then tying her tubes under an anesthetic. That's got much more risk compared to something simple. And once people realize that, that, you know, we need to push for more research, 
But at the same time, we've got to embrace the stuff that is here. We have to acknowledge the side effects. Yes, you may have a clot. Yes, you may have anxiety, you know, if you are a teenager, but you may be more anxious from your acne and from your increased hair growth and not wanting to step out. So the pill may be what will actually make a difference to you. You know, you may be a high achiever. You may be an athlete and you can't afford to have your periods uh, and lose out on the gold medal in, in the Olympics. So, you know, it's just important to understand that there is individualized treatment and that's fine but you shouldn't knock the evidence that is already there loud and strong yeah i think when it comes to the contraceptive pill what i've noticed is it seems to be a similar sort of angle as the ancestral diets in fact where where it's a a naturalistic fallacy that, well, why would I take something that's not natural? And when I say fallacy, where I'm coming with that is that it's an assumption that natural equals best. And I think that's a dangerous mentality to assume that natural always means best. I mean, there are many things in our life right now. If I had an infected leg, my natural option could be to bathe it in, I don't know, olive oil extract or something, or I could take an antibiotic and have a much lower... And prevent yourself from having an amputation. <laughs> yeah, and prevent the amputation. Um, so, you know, there are many things in our life today that are not, quote unquote, natural that improve our health outcomes. And so I do, I just find it interesting because I've noticed when it comes to the pill, there is a lot of controversy online, but I'm glad to hear from you that the science is quite clear that if someone is taking it and for a prolonged period of time, the benefits do seem to absolutely outweigh the risks. Yes. The important thing when I was mentioning about na natural, Simon, is that, remember, as I said, it's not natural to have periods. It's natural for us to have 10, 15 children and be dead in childbirth. Is that something that any of us wants to do? No. Similarly, when people say, oh, I'm taking a natural supplement or I'm taking a bioidentical hormone for menopause. No, 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 no. That is wrong. Why? Because there is nothing natural once you take the soya and put it into a tablet. There's nothing natural when you take estrogen and put it into a tablet. So you're better off standardizing it and eating the soya food rather than popping a tablet. So, you know, there's a billions of dollars, right, in the supplement industry. So there's a lot, you know, patients come to me with some 10, 15 supplements that they're taking. Boy, you know, that's expensive. You can't afford that. Why are you doing that? And, you know, the health professionals are also complicit in this because they don't actually realize that what you're doing is you're taking turmeric and putting it into a tablet or you're taking curcumin and putting it into a tablet. Now, curcumin is one of the active ingredients in turmeric. Just like beta carotene was one of the active ingredients in carrots, right? But what they found was when they gave beta carotene, just because they realized carrots was prolonging somebody's life with stage four lung cancer, they started giving tablets of beta carotene and they found that they actually got worse. The same thing happens. Turmeric has got probably 10, 15, 20,000 ingredients that are dancing again together beautifully. You then disturb the whole thing and take out curcumin. Yes, we've recognized it, but we are not smarter than nature. Nature has done the job for us already, you know, but it's cheap, isn't it? It's cheap to buy turmeric root. It's buy the turmeric root, you grate it, you use it or buy, you know, turmeric powder. It's cheap. And so when it's cheap, when you tell somebody to eat a whole food plant-based diet or when you tell them to eat more fruits and vegetables, how am I as a gynecologist making money when I'm telling you to eat broccoli? How am I doing that? I'm not. But if I tell you to take Neetu Bajekal's supplement 
I am going to be, you know, having a yacht and I'm going to do all kinds of lovely things with my life at the cost of others. And I don't care then really what's happening with, with people. So supplements have to be taken. They have to be taken in a very sensible way and not considered natural because natural, as you said, does not equal good in every situation. It just doesn't. And certainly not with the pill. Here, here. And, you know, I just think in general, it's a dangerous position to back to the pill as well to there's a big movement right now to really question Western medicine and to believe that it's all about money making. In actual fact, there is a lot of rigorous science out there to support many medications that that do improve quality of life. So I think to, to round that out, from what you're saying, you know, you don't have to take oral contraception and, and you can live a great life without it. But also equally, there's no reason to demonize it. Seems to be what I'm kind of hearing from you there. I, I think something very simple, I'll tell you. You know, we have a very, uh, uh, one of the fathers of obstetrics, uh, Semmelweis, who actually showed that in Austria, when he went from one clinic to another, he noticed that the maternal mortality was very high. Women were dying of something called puerperal sepsis or childbed fever. And simple thing of washing his hands, he noticed that the he did a simple trial and basically the death rate really reduced. He still was out of a job, but basically that's what happened. Now, on the other hand, we had Alexander Fleming who discovered penicillin. So if you don't understand, it's like wearing masks and the vaccine. So when you wear a mask, you are doing what Semmelweis was doing. You're washing your hands, you're wearing a mask, you're doing the best to reduce the infection. And then when you use antibiotics or vaccines when they're right, then you are trying to prevent the condition. So it's just important to know, and that's what lifestyle medicine is about, is that you use evidence-based lifestyle intervention. So it's not one or the other. You know, the people in the wellness space want to demonize Western medications and uh, conventional medicine experts want to say, ah, what's lifestyle? That's all hocus pocus. Don't listen to that. Just eat what you want. No problem at all. You'll be fine. Don't worry about anything. Breast cancer, no problem. You don't have to worry about changing your, your diet or lifestyle. Just no. Who suffers? It's the patient in the middle. Doesn't benefit from either of them. Both can actually, there can be a very happy medium where you can do both. You don't have, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You can always do lifestyle, whether you take hormone replacement therapy, whether you take oral contraceptive pill, you can only do lifestyle and not take any of those. It doesn't matter, but you need to know all the options. What is informed consent? Informed consent is when all the options are spread out in front of you. And I tell you, this is the sort of surgery that will help you. This is the medication that will help you. This is the lifestyle modification that will help you. What do you think would suit you best? Do you want to do all? Do you want to do one? Do you want to do none? It's your choice. It's your body, you know? Lots of different tools. I think it might be a good time now to dive a little deeper into endometriosis and PCOS. These are, are probably the two conditions affecting the female reproductive system that I'm most often asked about. Let's start with endometriosis. What is it and, and how common is it? Who's it affecting? Okay. So endometriosis is a disease generally considered of the modern age. 10 to 15% of people 
who have periods are diagnosed with endometriosis. It takes about seven to eight years to diagnose somebody. So there's a lot of overlap with irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, people are often dismissed. They're often told, oh, you're having painful periods. That's normal. That's okay. Don't worry. Have a child. It'll be fine. And so it's often overlooked. What is it? It's basically, imagine the lining of the womb that I told you that sheds at the end of uh, the two weeks after ovulation. So that lining, tissue very similar to that lining gets stuck outside. So, and we don't exactly know how it reaches outside. It sticks itself to the ovaries, to fallopian tubes, to the bowel. Sometimes it's found in lungs. Sometimes it's found in a cesarean section scar. It's sometimes found in your nose. So, Tissue similar to the lining of your womb deposited elsewhere can cause scarring, can cause pain. It can bleed every month when you have a period. That's why we stop periods. So pregnancy tends to make it better. The pill tends to make it better. There are certain hormone uh, injections that we use to manage the condition. So women can have, you know, chocolate cysts and, um, you know, basically cysts within the ovaries that are full of blood can cause terrible pain, can have constipation, diarrhea, urinary symptoms, pain on intercourse, and they look completely normal. So I had a patient and I wrote a blog for Huffington Post, I remember many years ago, because she came in and said, Dr. Bajikal, I just wish... I just wish people understood this is as bad as cancer. And it is a fate as bad as cancer. But when you look at somebody from the outside, they look normal. So they're expected to live their normal lives, even by their partners, because they don't understand what the fuss is about. But you know, where you're left sore for days after having uh, penetrative intercourse, when you are not able to get out of your bed because you have such painful periods, when you are not able to conceive because you want to have a baby, when you're left with you know chronic pelvic pain, endometriosis has to be considered. But the problem with diagnosing endometriosis is very complex. The only way is you have to see a specialist, like you can suspect it, you take a very detailed history, you examine, and sometimes you may find on internal examination that the person has pain, you may feel nodules, but often you feel nothing. And then you have to do an ultrasound scan. And if you have a pelvic ultrasound scan, sometimes you see cysts in the ovaries, sometimes you see nothing. And so the woman goes away thinking it's all in my head. And so you then have have to see a specialist like myself. You may have an MRI, uh, but you may have a, a camera test called a laparoscopy. And that is an invasive procedure. It's not without risks. So one would look at the bowel, look at the uterus, look at behind the uterus, in front of the womb, look at the ovaries, the fallopian tubes. And if you find endometriosis, you, if you're experienced enough, I'm a minimal access surgeon, I would treat the endometriosis at the same time. Now, that is an invasive procedure. Not everybody wants to have it. Not everybody's offered it. So it takes about seven years, eight years before you're actually diagnosed with this condition. And so it's a horrific situation. And then you have this treatment and you sometimes then offered the pill, but you may want to be trying to get pregnant. So you actually can't take any of these hormonal contraceptions and you may have to then go for, you know, more fertility treatment. You're also at a slightly higher risk of developing ovarian cancer because of the way the cells behave. And we do know that there is evidence to show that while there is no perfect diet, we do know that for every serving of meat, red meat or ham or even chicken that you eat, huge nurses health study that looked at, I think, 75,000 women, U.S. nurses, and they basically found that if you ate more than two servings a day and you think who eats two servings of red meat a day, but people do, uh, then you have something like a 70% increased chance of having endometriosis. If you eat instead, if you had 13 portions of green uh, vegetables and you had uh, per week, 
So 13 portions per week, we're talking about a small handful and one handful is 80 grams. So, you know, a small handful of spinach or kale or broccoli or cabbage or whatever. If you ate those vegetables, if you had uh, fruits, one fruit a day reduced your risk by 20%. Two servings of vegetables a day reduced your risk by 70%. And chicken was also associated, but not statistically significant. So we know that reducing animal products can make a significant difference with developing endometriosis. What, what do you think the mechanisms are at play there? What do you think it is about red meat in particular that might heighten one's risk of developing endometriosis? Okay, there are several mechanisms actually. Uh, and almost certainly we don't think, although it does contribute the saturated fats and the trans fatty acids, they do contribute to inflammation, uh, but also the heme iron in all these animal products actually causes oxidative stress, which is essentially, you know, damaging the cells and, you know, causing free radicals. There's also organic pollutants. So, you know, there are pollutants in the environment, antibiotics, hormones, all these things that are given to uh, animals that actually end up in the meat that end up in our stomachs. So we know that organic pollutants, heme iron, and even what studies have shown is that, you know, the lining, the endometrial lining of the womb, it preferentially concentrates cholesterol. And cholesterol is actually made by our own body, but the only source is from animal foods. And so this cholesterol then gets converted preferentially into estradiol. Estradiol is one of the types of estrogen. And we see that. And what basically happens is when it's locally concentrated, it causes thickening of the lining and increases the chance of endometriosis and endometrial cancers as well. That is why red meat, ham, processed foods, processed meats, even chicken are associated. Fish was associated in a five-year ultrasound study of uh, black women in the US where they found that and again, they don't know whether it's to do with the marine fatty acids or whether it's the marine pollutants, that why these women, when they were sequentially scanned, they found that the fibroids, which are lumps of benign tumors, estrogen fueled, just like endometriosis, these are all estrogen dependent conditions. They all often live together. You know, you'll find fibroids in the same person who's got uh, endometriosis and then, you know, others develop. So it's important to understand that there are so many mechanisms by which you know, vegetables and fruits tend to reduce inflammation by reducing inflammatory markers in endometriosis and how inflammation is promoted, oxidative stress, heme, iron, saturated fats, just aside from protein and the fats that can cause inflammation, it's all these other mechanisms as well. That bit on cholesterol. So high serum cholesterol is a, is a risk factor for what you were just talking about? Yes. So basically what happens if you see... So cholesterol is the building block, Simon. Essentially, without cholesterol, you cannot function. Now, cholesterol basically gets converted through a series of pathways into progesterone. Remember the pregnancy sort of related hormone, progesterone? That gets converted into androgens. Androgens are one of the most famous ones are testosterone, okay, the traditionally called male hormone, but it's not. Androgens get converted into estrogens. So it's all so closely linked. So when people say in polycystic Coven syndrome, there are increase in male hormones. No, 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 no. Again, all men have estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. All women have estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. They're just in varying amounts. And even during your lifespan, you will have different levels of estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, depending upon whether you are, you know, uh, before puberty, after puberty, 
pregnant, menopausal, all these ranges change. So, you know, there's a lot of stigma associated with, oh, I've got a lot of male hormones in polycystic ovarian syndrome. No. So endometriosis, we know, basically can increase these levels, use this cholesterol to our detriment. And also when you eat plants, what happens is you increase fiber. When you increase fiber, you promote the growth. So I think Alan Desmond has spoken a lot about the gut microbiome. Now, there is something which you may not have heard of, and I don't know if he spoke about it. It's called the estrobolome. Like the microbolome, there's something called the estrobolome. Estrobolome is the group of bacteria, the colonies of bacteria that metabolize, that synthesize, that break down estrogen in your gut. And what happens is it then excretes that excess estrogen. So those on a plant-based diet excrete two to three times more estrogen out of their system and it doesn't get absorbed back into your liver, what is known as the enterohepatic circulation. So increased fiber in a plant-based diet reduces your estrogen levels. And so that again helps because remember what I said, endometriosis, breast cancer, fibroids, all these are estrogen dependent conditions. They often tend to get worse in the presence of high levels of estrogen. So that is how a plant-based diet, one of the things that it does, it lowers all those inflammatory markers, lowers oxidative stress by increasing the antioxidants in your body, but also by increasing the fiber. Fiber is key to promote you know, good colonies. In endometriosis, there was a very good study done recently where they looked at the microbiome in your cervix, uh, which is the neck of the womb I talked about, and the microbiome in your gut. And they found that there were groups of bacteria like Shigella, Salmonella, E. coli that was higher in people with endometriosis. And, you know, those bacteria found more in those who eat animal-based products. And so they don't have the good thriving uh, bacteria. So they have more of those bacteria that cause secondary bile acids, while what they need is more of the firmicutes and the different groups. Uh, you know, I'm not an uh, expert in the gut microbiome. All I know is you need to eat a lot of plants to get that fiber up, not the 15 grams of fiber that people get, but we're talking about 30, 40, 50, 60, because uh, for all those who talk about a paleo diet, the paleo man ate up to 100 to 150 grams of fiber per day you know that's that's a big jump and that didn't come from animal products that they are by shooting animals they ate a little bit of animal foods but mostly tubers and roots and things like that yeah the high fiber nature of the paleo diet is often forgotten today on this topic of diet and endometriosis have there been any clinical trials, dietary interventions that have compared diet A with diet B versus diet C and looked at a group of subjects with endometriosis and looked at changes in symptoms and outcomes? No. Most of the studies are observational studies and they are from these big, big, big observational studies, which are like the nurses' health studies. So uh, there was a, another huge study uh, done by Yamamoto, I think, again, based on the nurses' health study. So they haven't, there may have been some small studies, but essentially, you, when you look at studies, you know, you can get studies to swing anyway. And so you need to have good power to studies and good randomized trials and meta-analysis. But what is quite clear is while there's no one particular diet, the definite advice is that you want to cut down on your animal products. Dairy is a funny one in endometriosis because of vitamin D. We know that vitamin D works as an immunomodulator, it's an anti-inflammatory 
It helps with the absorption of calcium, which is responsible. Uh, lack of calcium causes menstrual cramps. So people often give you supplements of calcium and magnesium. No, again, you want to eat the green leafy vegetables and the sesame seeds and things like that. So while dairy has got vitamin D, it's got lots of other negatives that, you know, sort of make you disregard them. But generally speaking, if the one thing you want to cut down or cut out with endometriosis would be animal-based products, especially red meat, ham, chicken, and fish for fibroids, alcohol. Alcohol has been, again, negatively associated because it raises estrogen levels. It causes inflammation. In fact, drinking even a single beer a day in women has been shown to increase the risk of fibroids and fibroids affect 50%. One in two people who have a uterus will suffer with fibroids. So, you know, the more you look at it, uh, what I always try and tell my patients is not just what you don't eat, it's what you eat is also so important. You know, if you decided that you wanted to eat, I don't know, a goat curry once in six months because that's what a cultural thing for you, fine, go ahead. If you're going to be having animal-based products three times a day, that means you're not eating something that is better for you. It's not that something is bad for you. It's a question of what is better for you. If somebody wants to eat a vegan donut, and I love vegan donuts, I would be very happy to eat it every now and again as a treat. But every time I eat a donut, I'm missing the chance of eating a bowl of, you know, freshly cut mango with blueberries and dark chocolate on it. I mean, you know, it's no comparison. It's always understanding what could be better for you. Every time you eat an omelette, you're missing the, it's better for you than sausages or a full fry up, but it's not better for you than eating oat pancakes or tofu scramble or a big bowl of porridge groats with soya milk and, and, and bananas and dates and walnuts. So it's really important to we often sit here and because we've sort of worked out what works in a good plant-based diet, we have to remember that most people haven't figured it out at all. They're lost. They're confused. There's so much of information. So I start off by asking my patients, how many fruits do you eat in a day? And they may say, oh, I don't eat fruit because of the sugar. Then I explain how the fiber is wrapped in the sugar and fruit juice is not good for you, but fruit is. Do you like any fruits? Often teenagers that I see and they'll say, oh, I love grapes. Okay, would you do me a favor? Would you eat a bunch of grapes every day? Okay, after one week, do you think, do you like mangoes? Oh, I love mangoes. I'd add mangoes. Will you eat an apple a day? And so you start with what they have. If you're already eating four fruits, eat six. If you're eating one, eat two. If you're eating two, eat three. So you basically build on that. So it doesn't feel threatening. It doesn't feel overwhelming. Because, you know, I tell people I'm vegan. Yes, definitely. I do this for ethical reasons. You can show me the best dressed steak, the best dressed sausages, and it's not going to excite me. It just can't. But uh, being plant-based basically means you're doing it for health in many reasons. And after that, you can have other things that come up, planetary health and you know animal suffering. But when you're doing it for health, do it in a kind way so that your gut thanks you for it. You don't feel bloated. You don't feel upset. And also you're not denying yourself. You're edging out foods. You're crowding out foods and you're bringing good ones in, you know, bringing color in. And once people understand that, they don't feel threatened. Oh my God, she's telling me not to eat my pizza ever again. Oh my God, she's telling me I can't ever have my burger. No. All you do is, will you consider doing this? Will you consider eating legumes, you know, once a day, a teaspoon of it, then maybe a tablespoon of it, and slowly you increase it if you're not used to it. It's just reaching out to people where they are starting because it can feel so overwhelming, so easy, you know, all this information I'm giving 
your listeners, for example, you know, I've been talking about it for 35 years and I'm expecting everybody to understand what I'm saying. And so my advice would be, don't think that everything I've said, you have understood it all. I expect you to remember 5% of it, you know, go away, read about it because, you know, we are human. We can't remember all this stuff that is completely new to us. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. And this podcast will always be here for people to come back to. I'm glad that you mentioned what you're potentially missing out on. What is the opportunity cost of the the food choices that you're making, you know, more frequently? And I I also I have to laugh when I hear about beer and its effect on estrogen because I love a beer, but so often I see beer drinkers talking about how bad soy is for our hormones while they're, you know, coming home to a glass of beer every night or or drinking six beers on the weekend. <laughs> and you mentioned soy a couple of times there, and I think right now might be a good time for us to tackle soy. Some may be thinking, well, if there are hormone balance issues, changes in estrogen levels uh, with endometriosis, is consuming soy a wise idea? So could you speak to that and, and what the evidence shows on soy? Okay. So if you don't want to eat soy, no problem. Don't eat it. Absolutely fine. If you're allergic to it, which is three or four people in a thousand, you don't want to have soy, no issues at all. But you're missing a trick here because it's a very, very healthy bean. I call it the magic bean because I've really researched into it. And basically, about 5,000 years ago in China, it was brought in. Glycine Max is from the family of the Fabacia, the bean family. So it's a bean. That's what it is. We're giving it so much of importance, but we have to remember it's a bean. And so what happens, the thing about soya is it contains other than the fiber, the protein, it has all essential nine essential amino acids arranged in the same way, like in egg white, which I know a lot of sporting athletes like to eat. And you know, people who want to build muscle, they focus on the egg white because yolk has cholesterol. Soya has protein, lots of micronutrients, lots of vitamins. But what makes it so unique? And there are 20,000 studies, 20,000 studies on various aspects of soy. Papers are produced virtually every day on it. What we know overwhelmingly is that it's safe for all ages and all stages. The earlier you start it, it's better. Soy contains something called phytoestrogens. Phytoestrogens are plant estrogens that have a little bit of activity similar to estrogen, but it also is very clever. It blocks estrogen. And so you remember the estradiol that I was telling you about, Simon? Estrogen in the body, whether it's from an animal or whether it's in our body, 
has an effect both on alpha receptors and beta receptors. Now, SOE works only on the beta receptors preferentially. So what it does, if you have less amount of estrogen, it will promote growth in that place. If you have too much estrogen, it will block the estrogen effect. So it depends upon where you are in your age, at puberty and later on. So what it does, if you are eating, say, for example, red meat and you have a lot of estrogen floating around or you're carrying excess weight, soy will actually go and block those estrogen receptors to reduce the risk of breast cancer. If you're a man, reduces the risk of prostate cancer. And the earlier you start it, so eating even a portion, that a portion of soya is a handful, a handful of edamame beans, a handful of tofu or tempeh, cup of soy milk. So roughly you're looking at 30 to 40 grams of isoflavones. So phytoestrogens or soya contains these plant estrogens. And there again, there are hundreds of different types of plant estrogens, which are known as flavonoids. And so soya contains something called isoflavones. And the two important ones there are called genistein and dietzen. Dietzen and genistein. And so genistein is the active ingredient in isoflavones. That is really all the studies have been done on genistein. And what happens is that different people react differently to soy in the sense that some people will see a lot of benefits and others see a neutral benefit. And that's to do with the kind of diet you're eating. Because if those who are vegetarian or on a plant-based diet, and if you're Asian, you are more of an equal producer. There's a compound called equal, E-Q-U-O-L, which is produced from the breakdown of the isoflavones, genistein, into equal. So if you have more equal, it has more estrogenic activity. So you have better relief of your hot flushes. You have better relief of endometriosis. There was a nice case control study in Japan that showed that Japanese women who ate good amounts, at least two portions of soya per day, had a lower risk of moderate to severe endometriosis. And that's important. So soya, green tea, turmeric, they're all anti-angiogenetic, which basically means that they prevent new blood vessel formation. So that's how they reduce the risk of breast cancer, prostate cancer, endometriosis. It's really important to understand, you know, mushrooms, mushrooms, Mushrooms also have this thing of blocking new blood vessels. I know we keep talking about a whole food plant-based diet, but two things that I want to see included regularly in that are herbs and spices, which are the magicians of the plant-based world and mushrooms. They're not typically plants. I know they're fun guys, um, but, you know, mushrooms should be added, you know, because they extract something called advanced glycation end products, AGEs, uh, that are produced in foods and by our body. So mushrooms are very, very healthy and health beneficial in many, many ways as well. So I want those to be included in our plant-based diet as well. <laughs> I love mushrooms and, and I actually love using herbs and spices to make them taste even better. And mushrooms are great because they they can bring a sort of meaty texture to a meal if that's something that you're used to and you're wanting to sort of downshift on animal products, still get a similar experience. I'm glad that you've clarified that on soy. I often talk about when I'm talking more about men and trying to clarify some of the confusion around soy that the highest quality evidence, which is a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials, clearly shows that soy consumption does not negatively affect male hormones. In fact, it positively affects it in the sense that you actually have you know, better concentrations of sperm, reproductive health has never been shown. And we can see that from observational studies, you know, look at all the Southeast Asian countries, you know, there's no problem with population. But also when you look individually, 
most people should be eating anywhere between two to four portions, including men. And children should be having at least one portion a day. And that we know is much more important. So it's never too late to start, but you want to start as early as possible. And certainly man boobs is more to do with the estrogen mammalian hormones that are present in animal-based foods or ultra-processed foods, which can trigger that sort of reaction in the body. They don't contain the hormones in ultra-processed foods. But soya has plant estrogens, which will have a blocking effect as well as an agonistic effect, something known as selective estrogen receptor modulator, SERMs. I have a whole fact sheet dedicated to soya on my website, and I talk a lot about it because, you know, there is it's such a shame because I see even people in the plant-based world missing out on soya when it can actually make such a difference. In fact, Neil Barnard just published a small randomized trial where eating half a cup of edamame beans every day, about 80 grams of edamame or soybeans, uh, which are delicious. You can buy them frozen and you can just put some lemon and salt and pepper and just pop them in your salad or just eat them, you know, like little sweeties if you want to. Uh, But basically, they reduce moderate to severe hot flushes by 84%. That's not something to be laughed at, you know. So it's really, really key. And now looking back, I suspect many of my symptoms improved because I was unconsciously eating these foods without having any clue that, you know, when I became menopausal, that these were actually good for me. I was just eating them because that was the choice that was there 22 years ago, you know? So another food that really needs a better PR agent because constantly, you know, I I understand why people who are perhaps not across the science may fear soy because you do see a lot of, whether it's on social media or on blogs, you see a lot of demonizing and fear generation. But it's just really important to understand that there is a lot of false equivalents out there. And it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, one profile says it's bad and one says it's good, which means nobody knows. But we do know and I'm glad that you've clarified that. There's a very good paper that you might put in your show notes, uh, a March 2021 a critical review of all the studies that have been done, including people are often worried when they're on thyroid medication. My only advice with thyroid medication, because soy can sometimes compete with thyroid, is to uh, give a gap of four hours, ideally, between taking your medication and eating soy products. But also there was a very good study done in, I think, Hull by Satya Palin. And basically they showed that osteoporosis, there's a reduction in the risk of osteoporosis when you consume soy regularly. So that's why, again, I want to say reproductive health, um, men's health, prostate cancer, colon cancer, bone health, every single thing. And in polycystic ovarian syndrome, a trial found that by eating soy regularly, you not only just improved your cardiovascular risks, but also dropped your waist size, lost weight and insulin resistance and blood glucose levels were much better. Inflammatory markers were lower. So, you know, really one has to look at the science before you reject something. And that's my only plea. Don't believe what I say. Look at the science, you know, because that's all I'm interested in. I love my patients. I love the public. I just want them to get the right information. That is my only mission. While we're tracking on endometriosis here, is there a link between endometriosis and IBS? Well, IBS is a big umbrella term, Simon. It doesn't really mean very much if you think about it. It's irritable bowel syndrome. So 
Endometriosis irritates your bowel. It causes constipation. It causes diarrhea. And so you may see your doctor who then says, oh, you have IBS and they give you some antispasmodics and never get to the bottom of it. So yes, it causes IBS, but it's just one of the hundreds of other things that can cause IBS. But if you are not taking a detailed history and actually digging to the bottom, if you're not a detective, see a health professional, a doctor is a detective. If you don't actually listen and ask people what their problems are, you're going to already decide in your head what the diagnosis is. And so, you know, you have those 10 minutes, you're going to make up your mind what it is and doesn't matter what the person's saying, you've already decided. So you miss that whole opportunity of giving them good advice, some resources, so they go away, think about it, come back to you, and actually they'll then come back to you less frequently. And that is the important thing. I don't want to see my patients. I want my patients to go away and never come back to me because there are plenty of people who need to come back, you know? And that's the important thing. People often think, oh, you're going to harm yourself by telling people about lifestyle. No, there are plenty of people who actually will benefit from the advice that you have. And so, yes, IBS, if a colorectal surgeon or a gastroenterologist is seeing somebody with IBS, they need to be thinking about endometriosis if it's somebody who menstruates. So talk to me about diagnosis. You mentioned before how a diagnosis is typically made, but you also mentioned that often the diagnosis is made after a number of years of the person experiencing the symptoms. So I'm interested from a diagnostic point of view and screening, are there any things that you would like to see explored or introduced across medicine, different fields of medicine, be it gastroenterology, gynecology, to help detect this earlier? So the thing about medicine is it's so exciting because there are so many people who dedicate their lives to actually find better, quicker, less invasive methods. So right now, you remember what I said, endometriosis, I have to put a camera in when you're asleep and I have to blow your tummy up with a gas that I may damage organs. So what we have now, which is actually very excitingly in the trial phase is a mitomic blood test. So a blood test to actually see whether you have those endometriotic cells floating around in your bloodstream and is as much they what they think is 90% accurate in diagnosing. And that is going to be a game changer when it comes to endometriosis, you know, completely different from a, doing a blood test versus an invasive procedure that a specialist can do. I'm really hopeful. It's like, you know, we used to do amniocentesis uh, where you actually take out fluid that surrounds the baby when a woman is pregnant and you check for certain things. We are now doing a lot of blood tests uh, to actually predict and tell us who would benefit from that and actually the majority who don't need to uh, have those tests. So, you know, there's so much exciting stuff. With smear tests, you know, the pap smear that I was telling you about, we have to examine women and put a speculum in, an instrument in to visualize the cervix. But actually we have now developed and are trialing in London a little swap that a woman will put in herself because, you know, if she's had sexual trauma, if she has a painful experience, you know, she can't have these tests done. She can just put the swab in and, you know, swirl it around and then send it off for analysis. We already have it for chlamydia and sexually transmitted infections. So there's a lot to look forward to. Very, very exciting. So that's why you can see why I love, I've got my foot firmly planted in both (laughs) sides because as I said, 35 years and I still just love what I do every single minute of it. Would you say all of your colleagues are on board 
with that message around diet and that's that's a very accepted message in your profession? Um, simple answer and long answer, no. Short answer, uh, three of my colleagues are now completely plant-based uh, in my uh, department. I have not been as successful as my husband who's got most of them to go plant-based in a bunch of orthopedic surgeons, which is amazing because they think their idea is to have a big stake. But no, the message is still not out. And so one has to keep talking. As If you remember, Simon, I mentioned in 2014, I set up an organization, uh, which was not a, cha- is not a charity, but it's what I used to do workshops and things. That's because I failed with my own hospital and I failed with my own Royal College, several attempts to try and set up uh, modules for trainees to educate them about diet and lifestyle. So I do not do any lectures for my students without talking about lifestyle, but I'm in a minority. And because I don't think doctors have any agenda. I just think they're not taught it. And so they fear it. They feel it's not their business. And so when a dietitian or a nutritionist is teaching you that, they're usually taught by people who also haven't been trained. They're often listening to lectures by doctors who don't know anything about nutrition. So as a result, that message is still not out. That is why I'm reaching out to the general population as well as my colleagues, because you need everybody to come through. Remember that we knew that tobacco caused lung cancer several, several years. It was just in the last decade, I think we've stopped cigarette smoking indoors. But doctors always knew for a long time, it was just because we didn't have the tools and there were a lot of big industries vested in it that, you know, we didn't talk about lung cancer and tobacco smoking. It's the same with diet. You know, you go home and you are eating a chicken sandwich or you're having a lunch, you know, brought by a drug rep and you're eating a a ham sandwich. How are you going to tell the person sitting in front of you that, you need to reduce that to reduce your risk of endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome. How are you going to do that? You know. So I'm sure that you have a great variety of patients, some who are more adherent than others. If someone listening is experiencing endometriosis, has endometriosis, and acts on the advice that you've given in terms of changing their diet, what changes could they expect? Is it about slowing down growth or minimizing pain or can someone completely reverse endometriosis? I don't think you can reverse endometriosis. Uh, I think what you can certainly do is halt the progress to some extent. But remember, endometriosis in itself The symptoms are caused by the effects it causes. It causes it by scarring and scarring and scar tissue between bowel and the back of the womb by cysts in the ovaries. So once you've developed those those severe conditions, you need surgery, you need medication. So this is a perfect example where lifestyle goes hand in hand with conventional medicine. You should not do one without the other. You need medical nutritional planning with a nutritionist or a dietitian who actually understands the importance of eating this way by lowering your estrogen levels, by lowering your inflammation levels. But they also are not averse to you taking certain hormonal medications if you need to get pregnant or if you don't want to get pregnant and if you need to have surgery, which can range from just treatment of the endometriotic deposits right down to sometimes a hysterectomy that I have to do. So lifestyle will always help. And remember, you're not living in isolation with endometriosis. You also, dementia, for example, is the top killer of women in the UK. 
Okay, 18% of all deaths are related to dementia. Heart disease is the next one. Cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, you know, ovarian cancer. You also may have painful periods. So when you have a plant-based diet, when you make lifestyle changes with sleep and stress, and we'll talk a little bit maybe of, about those, what you do is you're not just managing the endometriosis, you're also managing your other women's health conditions. You know, your skin may clear up. You may find that you can think better. Your hot flushes if you're menopausal may get better. So there are so many aspects. It's not that there's one diet to prevent aging and look younger. There's not one diet to prevent cancer. There's not one diet for endometriosis. There's not one diet to make you drop waist size. It is the same diet. It is plant predominant. It is trying to bring more whole plant foods, trying to bring more fiber into your diet, eating a variety of foods so that your gut bacteria are happy and dancing. That's what you're trying to do. You know, there's lots of discussion between low carb, high carb. What we do know is that the best amount of carbohydrate is about 50 to 55 percent. That's the huge uh, Lancet study with looked at mortality rates, it showed that if you are not eating whole grains and fruits and vegetables, then you are doing yourself a disservice. Little individual tweaks, yes. For some people, they may want to do an eco-Atkins where they're, you know, focusing on plant-based proteins. But when you eat animal-based proteins, you are worsening your mortality, whether it's a keto diet, whether it's a paleo diet, whether it's an Atkins, it's the same wolf disguised in different clothing. You know, there's no difference. So it's just being aware that you need to be kind to yourself. You need to care for yourself because if you don't love yourself, if you don't care for yourself, you're not going to have any time to care for anybody else around you. You know, and I know that I was an angry vegan. I was upset when I should look at people and I should look at my husband and think, oh, why aren't you just seeing where I come from? But that didn't serve any purpose. I wasn't doing good to anybody. So you have to, first of all, acknowledge that you're not a bad person because you had a piece of meat or a piece of chicken. No, no, no. It doesn't work like that. You have to first love yourself, make the changes so that you can bring changes to others. And that is such a simple thing to do once you understand it, that you got no race with anybody except yourself. And even that's not needed. You know, you just need to be accepting. And it's taken me a long time to understand that. You know, I've always been very driven, always pushed myself and sometimes to the detriment of my own mental health. And that's not good, you know? It's not good for anybody. It doesn't help anybody around you. No, beautifully, beautifully put. You have to keep your, your own cup full if you want to help the people around you. Yeah. I often have patients who come to me and say, oh my God, Dr. Bajikla, was really bad. I followed everything that you said and I had a piece of cake. I said, but nothing wrong with a piece of cake. Oh, but it wasn't, it doesn't matter. You know, this thing about I'm being really naughty, I'm eating a piece of cake. No, you want to enjoy that piece of cake, eat it. Just don't eat it every day. You know, that is the important thing. You mentioned having children before, and I'm interested where fertility sort of comes into this conversation around endometriosis. And firstly, does endometriosis affect fertility? And would I be right in assuming that many people living with endometriosis, if they've already had children and do not plan to have any more, then, then many would look at the oral contraception option that we mentioned before to reduce the pain that they're experiencing? So fertility is a real 
issue for those who want to conceive with endometriosis. And, you know, when I mentioned that 10 to 15% of people who menstruate have endometriosis, the incidence is much higher when you're investigating for fertility, uh, when you're having chronic pelvic pain, 70% of people when you put a a camera into the abdomen with chronic pelvic pain have endometriosis. Um, You know, 20% of those having hysterectomies have endometriosis. So it's much higher. Fertility, endometriosis comes with a real fertility cost. And it's not just, it's not through blocked tubes. It is really a very complex, there are tomes written on it. Uh, There are certain toxins produced from the ovaries that may damage the uh, sperm, may damage damage the egg. Uh, There are, you know, you don't ovulate enough. Also, you may not have sexual intercourse, penetrative intercourse uh, regularly because it's so painful. There are so many, many reasons why fertility becomes a problem. And especially there are four types of endometriosis and moderate to severe endometriosis has got the worst uh, prognosis. And so the earlier you pick it up, the earlier you actually seek help, the younger you are, those things really, really matter because it's to do with the number of periods. And the pill is often used in those who are not trying for a pregnancy. But once you've completed your family, you may go for something like the progesterone-containing coil, or you may have to have definitive surgery if every day is a living nightmare. And sadly, even those who haven't had children sometimes opt for those surgical procedures because they cannot face another day living the way they are. So, you know, fertility is a real problem and we are very clued on to it. But by the time you come to us, it's often quite late. So just a message to all the public and all the family doctors as well. Think endometriosis. Think always if somebody's telling you that they have painful periods, not responding to simple medications, don't ignore it. Yeah, and it's a great point that you made before that from the outside, it can look like that person is completely fine, yet their experience internally is just traumatic and makes it very hard to live a normal life and really eats into their quality of life. So if someone went down the route of surgery, what's the prognosis? Uh, the prognosis is still not very good. It needs lifelong treatment. That is why I said you need a specialist who can understand the whole problem and work with other members. So a dietitian or a nutritionist, a therapist sometimes, a pain management consultants, and then surgery. Surgery can help in the early stages. Minimal and mild endometriosis studies have shown that fertility can improve when I burn away the spots and remove the spots. But when you have moderate or severe endometriosis, large cysts in your ovaries, the bowel stuck together. I often work with a colorectal surgeon, a bowel surgeon, so that, you know, because sometimes there's a very real risk that you may end up with a colostomy, uh, you know, so surgery can be very helpful, but not always. And that is why everything has to be done in combination usually, but lifestyle is often left out of the equation completely. And so I think that's a disservice because, you know, you really have to, you just don't know who it's going to work for very well. And as I said, it's not only for endometriosis. So it's a win-win situation. You're going to lose nothing. You're only going to gain things. So on lifestyle, aside from diet, if someone listening right now, newly diagnosed with endometriosis, or perhaps they've been living with endometriosis for a while, what else would you suggest that they look at in terms of their lifestyle that may just make managing endometriosis that little bit easier? So specifically for endometriosis, I don't think the studies have been done, but 
There have certainly been done for polycystic ovarian syndrome, for menopause, for heart disease and diabetes. And we know there are six pillars of lifestyle medicine that will really benefit people with endometriosis. The first is, of course, diet or nutrition, eating a predominantly whole food plant-based diet, focusing on fruits and vegetables and beans and whole grains and nuts and seeds, herbs and spices. But the second thing is exercise. Exercise helps to wash away those prostaglandins, just like heat can do, like a hot water bottle. But exercise, especially we know, exercising for about three times a week of about 45 minutes tends to help with reducing painful periods, whether you have endometriosis or not. And so we know that a combination of exercises is very important. In PCOS, strength training is really important. It helps with insulin resistance uh, and high-intensity interval training like low-carbohydrate diets, both those can increase cortisol levels and cortisol levels can be raised in PCOS. In endometriosis, you want to again exercise and you want to do a combination. Basically, I, I tell women, do the exercise you enjoy. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter. You should be exercising for about an hour a day, not just the 30 minutes, an hour a day, which includes walking, maybe doing some weights, maybe 10 minutes of aerobic exercise, go for a run around the block, you know, walking in nature, Simple things. Exercise is is key to normalizing hormones, preventing hormonal imbalance, and washing away prostaglandins. The next is stress. Stress is so so not spoken about because stress basically results in raised levels of all inflammatory markers as well as cortisol. And so when you don't address stress, whether it's because you're in pain all the time, because you're not getting pregnant, because you're carrying excess weight, because you have acne, it doesn't matter which condition you have. If you have stress in your life and if you don't identify that you have those stress, because not always you can do something about it, right? You can't suddenly magically get pregnant or you suddenly can't magically wish away your cancer. But what you do is you say, I am stressed, I am having to look after a young family or I have older parents to look after. It doesn't matter. You identify your stress factors. If you can't get rid of those stress factors, then what you want to do is you want to use methods that will help you manage that stress. And while it may sound not very medical, there's plenty of studies to show things like mindfulness, meditation, you know, walking in nature, forest bathing, all these things uh, listening to music, listening to a podcast, you know, these are things, things that you enjoy. Hanging out with friends, social network is really important. Loneliness actually worsens hormonal imbalance and blood glucose monitoring. So we know that diet, exercise, identifying stress factors, reducing risky substance abuse uh, and risky behavior as well, because you don't want on top of endometriosis, you don't want to get a chlamydial infection or a gonorrheal infection or a sexually transmitted infection. So you want to use the appropriate contraception. You want to make sure that you're using barrier contraception. You're avoiding alcohol and smoking and caffeine as well. If you're trying to get pregnant because there's no safe limit of coffee, there's something like a 25% increased risk of stillbirth for every 100 milligrams of coffee that one drinks. So so the NHS guidelines of 200 milligrams is now being changed by the Royal College to say there is no safe limit with caffeine or with alcohol. So alcohol and smoking especially are important and also preventing other infections is really important. So, you know, alcohol often makes you take decisions that are bad when it comes to food choices or relationship choices. So it's just important to understand that. And then, so I think we've spoken about all the uh, lifestyle, exercise, diet, stress, 
social network, as well as avoiding risky substances and sleep. You know, sleep we haven't talked about, but sleep is so important to reduce your cortisol levels and to normalize your hormones. Remember that LH, the brain hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, completely depends upon good seven to nine hour of restorative sleep. And focusing on not just the duration, but the quality. Yes, it's really, really important. I'm terrible. You know, all my life, I have been on call at nights and having to rush at the drop of a hat. Really, really tough, you know, several years spent sleeping four or five hours per night. That's a good point. Some of that might scare people who are experiencing a lot of stress, are juggling two jobs, kids at home, crazy lifestyle. And I'm glad that you spoke to the the point of managing it better and you can nudge in the right direction. It's not going to be perfect for anyone. Taking five minutes, you know, five minutes, sit in the car before you come home to, you know, a bunch of screaming kids, take some deep breaths, um, you know, simple little things, literally simple things that when you do them regularly for two, three, four weeks, two months, they become a habit, you know. I know that because I just wish I had all this advice for myself, for my younger self. There's no race here to be caught. And you know, I should have learned by looking at my husband, who's so laid back that he's almost lying down. Uh, but, you know, it's, I think, important to just remember to take time out for yourself because you're worth it. You really are. Well, Dr. Bajekal, you are a wealth of knowledge. I think we save polycystic ovarian syndrome for a follow-up episode. Okay, I actually have a book coming out. (laughs) Well, that might be timely. How do you think we went? Do you feel like we missed anything super important here? No, Simon, it was fantastic. The problem is women's health, each part, each section is so huge, you know. It's a subspeciality in itself. And so you did a fantastic job. But I just think concentrating on periods and endometriosis was absolutely genius because, you know, PCOS is a whole two-hour talk, literally. Menopause is another, you know, every single one of this is so, that's why there are podcasts dedicated to these separate things. And women's health has been completely neglected even by lifestyle medicine physicians. I've done the exam. I know nobody talks about women's health because they're scared of it. You know, how do I talk about acne and how do I talk about periods? And it's, it's frightening for people. And that's what I want to do is I want to change people's perception that actually you can change things, even though you may not be a woman, you're a man listening to this, or you're somebody who, who identifies as a woman or as a female. Yep, I couldn't agree more. I think it's important that we normalize, you know, these topics and get used to this terminology and have more conversations regardless of our gender. So uh, thank you so much for joining me. I love your work. What's the, the best way for folks who are listening to connect with you and tap into the incredible information and resources that you put online? I think my website is really helpful. It's got loads of recipes. It's got about 50 uh, gynae fact sheets all about gynecology. It's got information about lifestyle medicine. What should I eat? What supplement should I take? Lots of videos, podcasts. This podcast would be linked on it as well. I am a fairly new to social media. I don't find many people of my generation out there, but you know what? That's fine. I'm out there. So at Dr. Neetu Bajekal and, you know, I am loud and proud about it. So that's okay as well. 
but yeah, that's the best way to get in touch with me. And I do, I am very responsive generally. I don't give individual medicalized advice, but I would guide you to certain things because I do feel people don't have access. Thank you so much. I will pop all of that into the show notes along with some of the various studies that you mentioned in this conversation. So once again, real honor to have you on the show and come back and let's do this again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Simon, so much for reaching out. I cannot tell you how appreciative I am. There we go. How did that one land for you? I hope that you found it interesting, instructive, illuminating, all the things. Of course, if you did, please do share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected too. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. That's at plant underscore proof. And on that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.